Thank you, Malcolm. Turn to our Bible readings now. If you'd like to follow, the first one is uh, on page 1156. It's from Paul's first letter to the Christians in Corinth, chapter 15, reading verses 20 to 26. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And our second reading uh, can be followed on page 984. It's from Matthew chapter 16 and reading verses 21 to 26. Jesus predicts his death. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you just uh, join me in a short prayer before I begin? Lord, we come before you in awe of your power, 
and in particular the way you defeated death through the resurrection of Christ. Help us understand what that means for us and those we love and how we can show it in our lives and the way we behave. Amen. Well, we're continuing our Easter theme, Why the Resurrection Matters, and Paul states boldly in the first verse of our reading from 1 Corinthians, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, planting the standard, if you like, of the living Lord firmly in the ground as the basis for what he's going to say. You could almost imagine him as a medieval knight. He's got his standard there and it's got the cross of Christ on it and he bams it into the ground. That's it. And it's the basis for what he's going to say and I trust after several weeks on this topic that we can all accept that the resurrection of Christ was a fact from the very beginning But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism, of course, for the dead. And literally in the Greek, it's first fruit, singular. There can only be one. Jesus is unique. Paul goes on. For since death came through man, resurrection from the dead also comes from a man. He explains, as in Adam all die and go on dying, it's a continuous process at the moment, thus also in Christ all will be made alive at the last day, that is. And note that that is, of course, a one-off event. And note also It's all, all will be made alive. Believers and non-believers will be raised when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. He goes on. Then the end will come and Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after Jesus has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. Now, I don't know about you, but with all the election fatigue, a referenda and politicking that we've been subjected to over the last year or so, I actually look forward to that bit of Jesus' coming. All dominion, authority and power will be destroyed because it'll be a new kingdom that he brings in, his kingdom. Bring it on. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And the Greek word for destroyed there actually means abolished, done and dusted, finished. A sense of certainty and fulfillment of old Testament prophecy, for example, from Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever and the sovereign Lord 
will wipe away tears from all faces. It's a wonderful promise to ponder on as we move to our second reading in Matthew 16, where Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem, that he will suffer many things, and note it's at the hands of the religious elite of the day, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and on the third day be raised. But Peter, headstrong as ever in verse 22, takes Jesus aside and rebukes his master, saying, in effect, God forbid that this should happen to you. And Jesus, of course, immediately sees what's behind this and reacts in the strongest of terms. Get behind me, Satan. The same words he used after the third time he was tempted in the desert. You are a stumbling block to me. And the Greek word for that is scandalon. It's it's a bent stick that was used to bait an animal trap. Because you are not thinking of the things of God, but of man. Now, of course, Peter acted from the best of motives. He didn't want his master to suffer. And yet Jesus saw that Satan used this to tempt Jesus away from the plan of salvation for which Jesus knew he had to endure the crucifixion. Now, it's interesting, just before this episode... Jesus had praised Peter as the rock. And yet, now, he's calling him Satan. And that's a warning, I think, isn't it, to to all of us to, to be careful how we engage our love, our good intentions, our good deeds, lest somehow they be abused and become part of Satan's plan and not God's. In verse 24, Jesus then turns to his disciples and says, if anyone wishes, we're all volunteers in Christ's army. There's no press game. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself It's always a challenge, isn't it, to subject our ego to Christ. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. A couple of things to note here. Um, It's a mistake to call every problem or difficulty we encounter a cross. It's not. Because the wicked, the non-believers have many sorrows but no crosses. The cross is any suffering we may run into as a result of following Christ. And following here is in the continuous present tense. It's an ongoing process. And verse 25 
takes this idea to its logical conclusion when Jesus says, For whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Comfort indeed to the many Christians who continue to die as martyrs today for their faith. And in verse 26, Jesus throws down a strong challenge to our current way of thinking, the materialism of today's world, and in effect pictures for us almost a a profit and loss account. On the profit side, on the plus side, the whole world. On the loss side, your life. And he poses the fundamental question that so many people ignore today, fudge, gloss over. What is life worth? Life here being described in the Greek word as psyche, it's the soul life. It's your eternal life. And put in that stark way, it becomes clear, doesn't it, that Christ is our only hope, the one who has been resurrected from the dead, the first fruit of that process, which will apply to us and all of our loved ones. And um, I thought it would be useful uh, to give an example of the effect that the power of the risen Lord has today on people, how it lives, how we can dismiss the people who are anti-Christian and who think that we believe in a fairy story. And it involves uh, a friend of mine, uh, John Horn, and his wife, uh, Kathy, a young Christian couple who work as missionaries in London. And a few years ago, they had a son, Daniel, and I think we've got a picture of him, Mark, haven't we? He was doing very well until in January 2015, I received this email from John. Our son Daniel passed away yesterday. He was 15 months old and had contracted meningococcal septicemia. There was nothing anyone could do and nothing we could have done differently. It all happened so quickly, we were with him in the hospital as he passed away. Now, at Daniel's funeral, John spoke powerfully of the family's absolute faith in the resurrection and how he surmised that Daniel would spend the first 20 years or so of eternity growing up because it was something he had been unable to do in this life. The family's fortunes improved when, short time later, in 2015, Kathy became pregnant with twins. But that December, I received another email from John. And he said this, The news is not good, so I want to say this first. Because we were told it was all over when we arrived in hospital last week, we have received these past ten days 
as a gift. We have been given time to say goodbye to our little ones, time that we did not initially expect to have. We have had time to give them the limelight. We have had time to decide their names. All the indications suggest that Kathy had an infection, and it's unclear whether this caused a sac to rupture or whether the ruptured sac caused the infection. But Kathy began to bleed this morning and then went into labour. If she had not gone into labour and the infection become septic, she would have died just like Daniel. So in a funny way, our boys saved her. That is their contribution. Although they had the size to survive, they did not have the lung capacity. They were born just days before they could breathe. Manny was born at 4pm. He came bum first and looks like Kathy. Reg followed at 6. He peed on his mum and has fat feet. Reg is short for Reginald, the name of their great-grandfather on my side, and the little guy even looks like a horn, poor fellow. Manny is short for Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when we sing about Emmanuel at Christmas time, we sing about Jesus. We sing about God become man. We sing about God become a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We sing about the God who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. We sing about hope. We will bury them with their brother. When he passed away, we looked to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Those who trust in him will one day be raised from the dead. As Daniel fell asleep in this life, so he will wake up in the next. As these kids failed to take their first breath in this life, so they will take it in the next. Chris and I saw uh, Kathy and John in London last month, and although they are still grieving, of course, for their three little boys, their faith sustains them. And indeed, John has just set up a new workplace outreach, and Kathy continues her ministry to victims of abuse. You see, they know that brokenness is not the end of the story, and neither is death. For me, their living faith is as powerful an example as you could find of the fact of Christ's resurrection and in due course our own. Who can dismiss it in the face of their perseverance and witness? You see, in a way, it's like our faith, the fact that we exercise our faith, that we go onto the streets of St. Helier, you know, Saturday after Saturday, that we we do all the other things that that, uh, Malcolm prayed about, that makes it alive and it proves it. And it's the same with the resurrection. No one can or should be allowed by our doubt to dismiss or undermine our faith, of which the resurrection is the cornerstone. That true Christian faith, described in Hebrews as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. 
so we like John while we can only speculate as to the manner in which we and our loved ones will be raised we can rest assured that the Lord will keep his promise to repay the years the locusts have eaten both in this life and in the next and wipe away the tears from every face Amen.